You can open up your Bibles to Haggai chapter 1, one of the minor prophets where you flick through hoping you'll come across, but he's after Zephaniah and before Zechariah. Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month, on the second year of King Darius. Thank you, uh, Matt. Well, friends, let's uh, pray as we uh, get into this book uh, this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We pray this morning that you would help us to understand it and apply it in our hearts and lives, that you would challenge us, Lord, with your word. And we thank you for this word given by you, for your people. May we apply this to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, uh, this morning we are commencing a new series on the book of Haggai. And I hope that in the next few weeks that you will have time to, uh, to read the book of Haggai. It's not a big uh, book to read. Uh, very simple. It has two uh, chapters, essentially. So read it through. Come prepared as we work our way through uh, this, this book. And I hope it will be a great encouragement to us as well. 
You know, from uh, I, 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 you know that I go walking most times uh, around my area, and uh, on numerous occasions, as I've done my walks around the area, I see this big crane. The demolition machine is there down the road, and houses that have stood for a long time have just been brought down in a matter of a day, essentially. And I hear this big pounding that's going on, boom, boom, and I think, what's going on here? And I'm fascinated by these buildings. I like to see, I stand on the side there of the road, and Rose is wondering, what's happened to you? I've said, dear, I walked for an hour this morning. Isn't that good? <laughs> no, really, I've been standing on the side sometimes, I'm watching this massive crane come along and bulldoze this whole building, boom, boom. And before long, so I keep walking along the way, and the next week, I see the surveyors there, and other guys have come in there, and they put their little sticks here and there, and before long, there's a concrete machine, big bulldozer, big machines there, and it's putting in all the concrete, and the project begins. And I am fascinated all the time, and I keep a mental tab of what's going on in this property. And before long, the frame is up, and the brickies are there, the chippies, chippies, right? The carpenters and the sparkies and I don't know what you call plumbers, but the plumbers are there and, and they're all getting stuck into the work. And then after that, the building's up and then the landscape guides are there and bang, they have a beautiful house, right? You've seen that happening to perhaps some of the houses down your streets. Everyone's involved in this massive building project. Fascinating work going on. If I was to give a, a, a serious title to the book of Haggai, I would say God's Building Project. If you want to look at a serious title on this, we would call it perhaps God's Building Project. And that's what we're going to look at in the book of Haggai this morning. Let me give you a historical setting. Here at St. Stephen's, we try and work our way through books of the Bible. John and myself, we sit down, we do the preaching plan. We try and do topicals as well, and we will do some topics uh, in our morning services as well, coming up soon. And so we work our way through the books of the Bible. Let me give you an historical setting. It's important, I think, for us to understand where this book fits in, in the overall scheme of things. The book is set around 520 BC. So this might be a bit of a history thing, but don't say, oh, Pastor Chris, that's not for me this morning. I'm not really interested in it. Well, I think it's very important because we'll see the hand of God here, all right? So don't just shut down because it's a history thing, right? It's not really. So God was speaking to God's people. The book is set around 520 BC, which was a momentous time for the Israelites. God was speaking to them through a prophet for the first time since they returned from the Babylonian exile. The Lord had prophesied to Israel. This is what he said. He had already told them through Moses that when they abandoned him, that he would bring discipline upon them through other nations. When they sought to disobey God, that there was a consequence for that. And as he promised, as God's people turned their backs on him, as God promised, he used the Assyrians in the 8th century BC to bring judgment and discipline upon the ten northern tribes of Israel as they had rebelled against God. Then the two southern tribes also began to ignore God and the true worship of him. They mixed in pagan worship 
and ungodly worship with Baal and Molech, and they kind of wandered away from God. They were unfaithful to God's word. Now, how did God respond to such worship by his people? Did God say to his people, oh, well, it's okay. Don't worry about it. After all, I'm a God of love. I really don't care too much about this. Is that the way God responded? No, he did not. He raised up another nation that defeated the Assyrians, and that nation was the Babylonians. They were fierce warriors under a relentless king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Right? Nebuchadnezzar, he came in there and, Babil and the Babylonians were merciless. He made three invasions to the southern tribes. He invaded them in 605 BC, 597 BC, 586 BC. We really don't know how many people he took into exile. But when he first came, he took away some of the young cream of the society. Young men, such as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach. Remember those guys? Abednego, all of these guys. They were probably from the tribe of Judah. And when he came back, he took more taxes. And he began to bring warfare into the streets of Jerusalem. And then in 586 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon dealt a severe blow to the worship of God, of the God of Israel. He went for what was known as the pride of the tribes of Israel. That is the temple itself. The temple of God that has stood by the hand of God been built in the days of Solomon for over 400 years. And now the temple lay in waste and its furnishings had been taken away to Babylon. What a sad situation. And so then comes Jeremiah. And Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 25 says that the hand of God's judgment is simply for a time. And God will take another nation. He will use another nation. He will raise another nation to bring judgment on the Babylonians. And this is what took place. About 50 years later, Cyrus the Persian comes along and he defeated the great Babylonian empire. And he brought the Babylonian empire to an end. And then something remarkable takes place. Something remarkable takes place. Cyrus issued the famous decree to let the people of God, the exiles, leave Babylon and go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. Okay? Let's look at Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. If you have your Bibles, you can see it in that as well. In the first year of Cyrus king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So we are seeing prophecy fulfilled here, right? The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. And what did he put in writing? Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, 
the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God. So friends, in 538 BC, he allowed the Jews to return to their homeland to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. It's easy for us to miss the point here, right? Have you thought of what's going on here? <laughs> Do you see something of the sovereignty of God in this situation? All of this was owing to the sovereign hand of God. It was fulfilling the prophecies of Jeremiah as we read in Ezra. And let me also refer to another passage that is very telling regarding Cyrus. And that is in Isaiah chapter 44, 28, where we have these words who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. So what we are seeing here, I don't want us to miss the point this morning. So what we are reading in Haggai is what we see a pagan, ungodly king, correct? Cyrus, who will serve a role as a shepherd to guide God's people back to Jerusalem, to the cities of Judah, and to rebuild the temple. Isn't that amazing? The most ungodly guy. God is going to use him somehow in his providence to rebuild that temple. <laughs> you know, friends, the Bible tells us this in the book of Proverbs. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. What a reminder for us. We are thinking in the next, on the 8th of November, right? The big elections in the U.S. Is it going to be Clinton? Is it going to be Trump? We are hearing all kinds of things, right? From both candidates, right? One's getting a bombardment of emails, one after the other. You heard about that. The latest FBI uh, inquiries into the emails just started again yesterday, right? Uh, the FBI director has uh, reinitiated that. And then you have all those accusations about Trump, so we're thinking, like, who is this? Who is going to be the next president of the U.S.? We look at our own countries. We look at rulers in the world. And we think, where is God in all of this? Let's be reminded that they are in the hands of God. It's in his hands. Do you believe that? He can change the wills of pagan men and women for his purposes. Because he is God. So he is not only the Lord of his people, but he is the Lord of all, and all the nations are in his hands, as we will see later in the book as well. And so the beginning of the return to Jerusalem takes place 
under and by the direction of a pagan king. And so we read about 50,000 of the exiles chose to make the trip, the return trip to Jerusalem. We read of it in Ezra chapter 2. We read of it in Nehemiah. For example, in Ezra 2.64, the whole company numbered 42,360. Besides their, all those numbers, 7,337 7, men servants and maid servants. You got the numbers, right? It's all there. <laughs> and the book of Nehemiah, Ezra, and Daniel covers this period of history. And it is within this framework and context that we have the book of Haggai. And so this morning, we're going to look at verses 1 to 11. I was going to cover the whole uh, chapter, but there's a lot of material here, so we're going to look at 1 to 11. And we have two points that I want to particularly focus this morning on consider your ways and consider the challenge, verses 1 to 6 and 7 to 11. So please keep your Bibles open with me to that chapter. 1 to 6. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. All interesting names, right? You're looking for names for your children? <laughs> Try them, Jehozadak, and all that kind of stuff, okay? All right. Anyway, now it's not always that we can pinpoint with absolute accuracy a date. But in this case, I've not worked out all of this. I've looked at commentators and so forth and given a general understanding. I think it's around the 29th of August in 520 BC. So we have Darius mentioned, Zerubbabel mentioned, Zerodadak, the high priest, and we'll touch on that as we go through the book. And notice, friends, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai. What a statement. The word of the Lord came. The first time after exile, the people could listen to the authentic word of God, the voice of God through the prophet Haggai. God was speaking. And this word did not originate from Haggai, did it? Its origin, its author is God who has communicated this word by the prophet Haggai. Now who is Haggai? Well, we know very little about Haggai. Haggai's name, you know what Haggai's name means? It means festive or festival. That's a good thing. He must have been a very joyful bloke, right? A festival. It could be that he was born during a festive period. Uh, we are not sure how old Haggai was. Some traditions place him as an old man who perhaps could uh, remember the former glory of Solomon's temple. He was one of those who early returnees from exile, as seen in the book of Ezra. Haggai was there from the very beginning, 539 BC and so forth. God raised him for a specific purpose, and then he seems to disappear. He's a prophet. We know this because it says in Haggai chapter 1, verse 1, we know where he ministered. He ministered in Judah during the time when the two tribes were taken into captivity. His entire life is summarized in the Bible in a span that occupies simply four months. Very short biography. And there are four major prophecies in this book. Neatly divides this book into four messages, but we're going to do five messages from the book. And each of them is precisely dated. The four prophecies, if you're looking in your Bibles, chapter 1 verse 1, chapter 2 verse 1, chapter 2 verse 10, chapter 2 verse 20. 
We'll look at those messages as we go through the book as well. So some have referred this book of Haggai to the book of the second temple. The first temple had been destroyed. The exiles had returned for the express purpose of rebuilding the temple. We can see this in Ezra chapter 3, 8 to 13. They had built an altar, observed the feast, and they seemed to seek the Lord. And Ezra chapter 3, which we read, tells us that the foundation of the temple had been laid. But whatever happened to those good intentions? What happened to the rebuilding of the temple? Let me say this. Maybe the Persians were at this time conquering Egypt and there was a problem. Perhaps the Persian troops are passing up and down the land and perhaps stationing themselves in Jerusalem. From the book of Ezra, we note that the Samaritans had been opposing the work of the rebuilding of the temple. One thing we know for sure, 20 years had passed and the rebuilding of the work of the temple of God in Jerusalem has come to a standstill. So what is the real reason? Have a look at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Not yet, Lord. Too busy. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of a guy, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, my house, my temple lies in ruins? That's the point, isn't it? There is a phrase used in Agai that is a phrase used to refer to the Lord. And it's actually used over 200 times in the Bible. The Lord of hosts. That signifies a powerful Lord. Powerfulness of this God. The Lord of hosts of heaven and of earth. And everything stands behind him. Yahweh, the covenant keeping God. The Lord of hosts. Notice what the people had been saying. What were they saying, friends? What was the problem? They were saying to God that, God, you can wait. You can wait. The time was someday in the future, perhaps, but not, not now. Not yet too busy. That's, by the way, the sermon title, right? So if you, someone was to ask you this morning when you left this place, what was the message that that guy spoke of? Not yet too busy. Remember that? So, we're too busy. Doing what? They were building their own houses. You see, it wasn't customary in Jerusalem for houses to be paneled. And certainly not perhaps using the cedar wood that Haggai refers to. You see, the cedar wood perhaps was the very wood that had been brought from the mountain ranges of the day of Tyre and Sidon, where cedar trees grew. And the timber had been brought had been bought and purchased and brought to Jerusalem with a view to rebuilding the temple. And perhaps what Agai is actually saying is much worse. Not only had they deviated from the specific command that God had given to them to rebuild the temple, but they had actually taken the very wood that was meant for the temple to build their own houses. Now many of the initial returnees from Babylon were actually not poor. It would certainly have taken enormous wealth to build the kind of houses that are being recorded here. It 
the, you see, uh, all the while the temple of God was in ruins. The stones of Solomon's temple were lying in heaps on the floor. And they were saying to God, not yet, too busy. We are building our paneled houses. Can't you see the lovely houses, God, that we are building? Surely I need a roof above my head. Surely I need to provide. Surely I need my house. Surely this is everything to me. You can wait. Now, friends, there is nothing wrong. Let me say this clearly. There is nothing wrong in being good stewards of what God has entrusted to us. Correct? We, are, we of all people should exercise care and wisdom in how we use the things that God has given to us and take care of what the Lord has blessed us with. So if you have a house that needs renovation and needs to be well maintained, well, do it. Look after it as a gift that God has given to us. Right? Nothing wrong in maintaining our houses. You don't want water to pour, be pouring down from your roofs, isn't it, while you're sleeping or having a meal, right? Or your, your, your oven is like 100 years old that you can't bake a cake in it. Or you can't put pork belly in it because it comes out as a burnt offering. <laughs> okay, you know, now that gives you a clue. I love pork belly, by the way. <laughs> I have tried it. It hasn't worked all that well, so. So I go to the shops, I go to the, 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 the cafes, and I buy uh, you know, $3 worth of, uh, what do you call it, uh, crackling. It's a cracker thing, you know. Anyway, the point is this. The point is this. We ought to look after our things. Nothing wrong. Not to take care of our property and our families is simply bad stewardship. We must be responsible. So don't go out of this place saying, well, um, I'm not going to do anything about my house. Your wife is saying... Please, can you do the garden? No, no, I don't really care. Pastor said, don't worry about it. The, the floor is the cracking. This is happening. No, don't worry about this. That's not the excuse. What was going on here? Rather, they were saying, you see, we are busy with building. Perhaps all the building renovations. Think, my dear friends, of the many TV shows on houses and renovations, right? Uh, didn't say about, wasn't there a show about, called The Block, Right? Uh, what about on Friday nights? What's the show on Friday nights usually? Better homes and gardens. I look at those gardens and I think, man, don't show those gardens because it puts guilt on me. Right. Uh, so many shows on houses and renovations. We as a nation are obsessed perhaps with houses, isn't it? People are writing about the cost of houses and etc. and all of these things. Now, what's the problem here, friends? How does God respond to what these people were saying? Look at verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. That is, the money is falling through your bag. It's like having a purse that's all broken and the money is coming and it's falling through. You see with five, five poetic contrast, each concluding essentially the same thing, Haggai has painted a picture of their economic and social problems on account of their actions. You have planted much, you've harvested little. You eat, but you're never, you never have enough. 
You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, you're never warm. You earn wages, they're going through. Get the picture, friends? Isn't that interesting? See, don't misunderstand what Haggai is saying here. These people are not poor. It wasn't that they didn't have enough bread to eat or clothes to wear. You know what has happened here? Greed. Greed has set in. Stuff and stuff and more and more and more. And their lack of satisfaction is evidence against them. They are living but not fulfilled in their living. Now this is subtle, right? It comes to me. I've got to say that. It comes to you. We see our ads on TV and we want the bigger and the better thing, right? Uh, we want always something better. Now it, it, it comes to me. I have to watch my own heart, right? The temptation is to go beyond what you can uh, have and to put ourselves under intense stress and turmoil. And then to Jesus we say, you can have the leftovers. You see, their labor was empty. Why? Because their priorities were wrong. See, Israel's pain is common to all those who do not have God as the priority number one in your life. So you see, friends, if we live for the things of this world, if we build our lives entirely on the things of this world and put God out of the picture and give him the leftovers, you and I will never be satisfied. Try it and see. See, life is a rat race. And, if, and that if we spend our entire existence trying to keep up with those around us, then we never will keep up and we will never be satisfied and we will never know the peace of God and we will never know the joy of living a fulfilled life because you go from one thing to another. One is not enough, you want two. Two is not enough, you want three. Three is not enough, you want four. Four is not enough, you want five. And you keep going on and on and on and so what in the end. And God is pushed out. Is that the fulfilled life you want to live? Is that the life you want to live? Can you take it with you? Can you? I have done many funerals. I have st stood at the bedside of people who were passing away. Sad moments with family. I have never heard, never, never in my 28 years of ministry by God's grace, never heard someone say to me on their dying bed, I'll take care of my five houses or my ten properties or my this or my that. I've always said, that's my family, my family. Yesterday I had a call. Yesterday we had a message from Sri Lanka that was so sad for us. We lost a, a close relative of mine, was my uncle was very close to. He was found dead in the morning by my cousin. And I thought to myself again, death can come. Are we so busy that we say to God, not yet, too busy, not yet, too busy. I will do and I will serve Christ when I retire. I, sp I speak to lots of retirees and they say to me, I'm so busy in my retirement, even more busier than when I was working. <laughs> because I'm traveling, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm looking after my grandchildren, I'm cooking this, I'm cooking that, I'm going here, I'm in a social club there, I'm, I'm busy. You see, when are we not busy, friends? 
You and I are all busy all the time, right? We live busy lives. All of us. And do we say to God, not yet, too busy. Consider the challenge, friends. God issues a challenge to the people here. Thus says the Lord, verse 7. The Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Think, think, stop, think, stop, think. Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house. You know why? The NIV translation is not the ideal translation there. That I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. That's the point. The temple is to be built. Why? To bring glory to God. He's not talking about a nice temple that everybody passes by and says, Wow, what a nice temple. What a nice building. What happened in the temple, friends? God met with his people at the temple, right? In the Old Testament. He interacted with his people. It was the place that God was worshipped. It was the center of action. He asked them to consider their ways. Go up to the hills. Get into action, friends, he says. You look for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, this is what God says. Have a look at verse 9, please. You look for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, he declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruin, while each of you busies himself with his own house. How sad. What is God saying? I take it and I... Have you ever tried to blow something from your hand? Held some ash, for example. Just goes, right? That's the picture here. Listen to what God is saying to these people. If that's what you live for, if that's what your sacrifice, you sacrifice for, don't be surprised if God blows it away and you never find satisfaction and contentment. Never. I blew it away. See what God is saying to Agar. You look for much. I blew it. You brought, you brought all this stuff home and you beautified your homes and you have missed all the things. But I blew it away. No satisfaction. Friends, God is saying that you will never be satisfied. And you'll be always yearning for more until he is your everything and my everything. You see, these people were living in continued discontentment. Nothing satisfied them. You see, this was a spiritual problem. It was a heart problem. And we can't pass over that lesson easily, can we? It's for us too. That we devote ourselves to sowing and eating and drinking and clothing ourselves and earning wages, all good things. But we neglect the glory of God and the service of our God. Today is the 30th of October, as John said, the Reformation Sunday. Next year, on the 31st of October, 1517 was the first of the Reformation. will be the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And the PCA is organizing trips to, uh, to Wittenberg. Go on the website, we'll give you more information. And uh, we'll be taking special offerings for John and myself, retiring offerings to send your ministers to, uh, <laughs> to enjoy the Reformation tour, right? You, you agreed with me? <laughs> the point is, Praise God for the Reformation. He's reforming his church. Nothing satisfied these people. Let's keep going on. 
The point is, how do we live a balanced life for God? Are you giving God your leftovers? You are so busy. You're working from 8 to 10 o'clock, maybe, I don't know, whatever. You're doing so much that you are already half dead. And when it comes to serving him, not yet too busy. Not yet. Tell that to the Lord one day. Not yet, Lord, too busy. Friends, in verse 8b, we read, but it's at stake here, the glory of God. Now we don't, in the temple, now we don't have a temple to build today, right? But rather the Old Testament uh, temple pointed to something beyond the building. Well, what did it point to? Let me give you quickly these things. The Old Testament temple was a type that was pointing forward to something that was to come. One, the Old Testament temple pointed to Jesus Christ. In John chapter 2, he was talking about the temple of his body. Jesus answered, destroy this temple and in three days I will... What, 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 what? Raise it up. He was talking about his body. The second thing, the temple pointed to Christians. We are the temple of God, right? 1 Corinthians. Thirdly, it also pointed to the church, God's people. We fulfill the temple stood, but the temple stood for him. 1 Peter chapter 2, we are the living stones. And the temple also pointed forward. We did revelation, pointed to the temple, the eternal dwelling of God with men in revelation. That's how we need to see it. And so for us today, friends, as we work on this message, the challenge is to be involved in great God's building project, and that is, is church. Why do I say that? Ephesians chapter 1, 11 and 12. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. We are the church. We don't have a temple. We are involved in this work. God's great project. Are you part of it? Are you entering into partnership in this work? As a leader of this church, how are you serving him? I am deeply humble. I was talking to Rose this past week. We pray for you every day. And we talk about those who serve so much. Our team leaders. Our youth group leaders. Our growth group leaders. <laughs> those who serve putting up these flowers. Who behind the scenes. How else can I not work hard for this place? When I see you as God's people working so hard. And I thank God for you. I went around this morning to a few people and I said, thank you for your service to this church. For God's building project. And if you are a leader in this church, you need to ask yourself, am I putting my shoulder to the wheel or am I sitting back and saying, wow, let these people work. And I will just hum along. Is that your approach? You think about it. You need to ask yourself, this is not for me to say to you how you organize your life, right? We're not legalists yet. You need to ask yourself before God, what is the priorities in my life? 
If I'm doing too much, cut it out, friends, because you might die of hard work. You got to ask, you got to ask yourself, what can I do in the service of God's building project here at Surrey Hills? Because everything else will go one day, and it's the kingdom of God that lasts forever, right? And are you investing in kingdom work? Are you? Because God has given you life to live, right? One life. He has redeemed you with his blood, that of his son. And he has given you an opportunity to be part of his building project. Enter into partnership with this God. So this morning, as we conclude, how about you this morning? Not yet too busy? <laughs> Are we so busy that we have no time to serve him? Build my house for my glory, God says. Half-heartedness is not the way. The priorities here were upside down. We excuse our failure to obey God by saying, not yet. Where have you said, or when have you said no to God? If this is you and I this morning, then I encourage you to prayerfully look at your schedule. Put out your schedule, talk it over with your husband, your wife, or whoever it is, and say, Okay, how am I managing my time? What am I doing in kingdom, kingdom building project work? Am I giving to this God the leftovers in his church? What can I do? You need to ask yourself that. Yes, Lord, I know that your church has to be built, but Lord, not yet too busy. Finally, friends, in closing this, think about the generosity of Jesus. The building work is done for the glory of our God. And Jesus is the one we are serving because he gave his all for us. Are you going to enter into partnership of serving him? Don't be a fence sitter. Right? You say, God, wow. That's that word, wow. <laughs> Those on camp will know that. Wow, what a great God you are. What a generous God you are. What a great joy it is to be enter into partnership in kingdom work. What a great privilege to be in God's building project. No one can come and demolish that work. We all put our hands together, get our hands dirty in the work, and the building is being built, and Christ is being honored, and God is glorified. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your building project in this world, your church, that you are building. Help us, Lord, to search our hearts and lives, each and every one of us here. Help us to repent where we have to. Help us to prioritize where we need to. Help us to change our schedules if we have to, Lord. Help us to invest in God's building project, his church, here at Surrey Hills, and wherever you place us. In Jesus' name, amen.